Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christopherson, and I'm joined today by the co-host of the Unbelievers and the Zona del Silencio podcast, Russ Ryan. Welcome to the podcast, hey. man. <laughs> Rob, thanks for having me on. It's really great to be here. Uh, it's it's great to have you on, and I know how much of a champion you are of the rods, so it's great to have you on because, uh, you know, it was a passion project for a long time. I was very devoted to rods, so was my friend Brian, and, uh, you know, we had our hearts broken uh, when they just went away, and I think they're due for a rebrand at some point. Uh, I'd like to know how you feel about that. I don't think so much a rebrand. I just think a little more awareness is needed. See, the world lost Jose Escamilla a few years ago, who championed all kinds of things, but he was the original champion of the Rods. He was also mm-hmm. very into the Battle of Los Angeles uh, and Roswell, which he also liked to call Rodswell, because mm-hmm. one of his original findings was, of course, Roswell Rods. But uh, I think since his passing, yeah, and I think since Joe Rogan uh, so so easily took uh, Jose Escamilla down <laughs> in a uh, at a live appearance where Jose assaulted him on stage with questions about rods, I think ever since then they've they need to come back. And uh, yeah, I've definitely been sticking to that, trying to get, trying to keep him out there. Yeah, it's you're doing important work out there, and I and I do appreciate that. And uh, we're doing the important work today. We're talking about some cases from brazil and these are some unique cases that most probably haven't heard of before and uh even i like this kind of scraping like not necessarily the bottom of the barrel but probably like the places that you didn't realize that you could be scraping inside that barrel and uh we've got a lot of interesting cases here but uh there a lot of these are going to kind of like focused in certain either municipalities or states within Brazil. Um, there's one area that Bob Pratt uh, would championed called the uh, Valley of the Old Women, which See, I know the Valley of the Dolls yes. and beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the Valley of the Old Women. That's that's new territory. And you're right. This is kind of the fringe of the fringe stories. But I think they really fit in a, a really well with like the bigger Brazil, Brazil cases. You kind of get an idea of the entire experience of of humanoids and UFO sightings in an entire country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, uh, according to Bob, uh, who was, you know, for a long time, journalist with the National Enquirer. He was, uh, he he focused a lot on Brazilian cases. He'd made plenty of trips uh, down there and talked to uh, local residents, got a lot of uh, interesting stories. And uh, this valley in particular encompasses about 10,750 square miles of cattle ranches and farmland, um, I believe, when Antonio V.S. Boas had his experience, he was in the Valley of the Old Women or very well near it, uh, because uh, most of this is in the state of Minas Gerais, which is um, it's kind of more towards the south. A lot of Brazilian cases 
came from the south. There was uh, a fair amount in the north in the like the late seventies, but it's interesting that most of the cases generally come from Minas Gerais uh, and some of the other southern states around uh, Brazil. But uh, uh, this uh, this is an interesting interesting set of cases here but uh uh you know many this whole area yeah is interesting so this is in the south right and i guess it's considered more farmland here yeah. uh, i mean you can kind of almost you know analogous to america almost as far as that goes the south is considered kind of the south yeah yeah I, I i in some places they talked about it being kind of like central brazil but it looks like much further south than central brazil would you would think it would be but uh yeah this is um this is uh minas Gerais. it's where the virginia incident which we uh we talked to uh, about a little bit before uh recording uh it happened in Minas Gerais. Um, uh, the Jose C. Higgins case, which is kind of the first humanoid case in Brazil. It, it occurred like about a month after Kenneth Arnold's sighting in 47. This guy, Jose C. Higgins, he's a surveyor. Uh, he's uh, doing some work kind of out in this remote area. And he sees this UFO land these really tall aliens get out and they're kind of prancing around and uh, they try to get him to come on board their UFO, but uh, he's scared for his life, you know, just kind of refuses. And uh, you know, they let him be and they frolicle around a little bit before taking off. So uh, yeah, this is kind of the hotspot for a lot of things, but uh, in- and that's a theme that is going to come up too. It seems mm-hmm. with every Brazil case, you talk about, you talk about uh, Antonio, you talk about Virginia case, which are decades apart. I mean, yeah. Boas is what, 50 and 57 around then. Yep. Virginia is in the nineties and everything in between, which is kind of what you're going to talk about. People, there are aliens are always trying to either trick them or like beat them up or get them to come in their ship one way or another. Yes. Or just frolic around in this case. Yes. They started innocent. It did start innocent. And then things got off the rails pretty damn quick. Uh, but uh, uh, we're going to move around a few different areas here. And, and the first case here uh, is uh, from November of 1952 in Sao Paulo's Angatuba range. Author Dino Craspedon claimed that he spotted five UFOs over the mountains and that he entered one of the landed objects, uh, which was like bell, uh, like a bell-shaped craft. And it was pretty big. It was about 300 feet wide. This is, you know, uh, this is a beefy looking craft here. And he spoke to one of the crew, which was like this six foot tall uh, man who claimed to live uh, uh, in on Ganymede, one of, uh, you know, Jupiter's moons. And uh, it was it just like it's a so crazy. specific of a of a location for him to be from, and the and the fact that the alien would refer to it as uh, Ganymede. Yes, yes. Uh, but like, what's interesting in the kind of patterns that you're going to get here is uh, the range of humanoids in this case are kind of contacty-ish, very human-looking, kind of your uh, Adamski and uh uh contacty venusians and then you have these like really short kind of beings that just like pop up here and there some incredibly short like under a foot tall so uh 
you're getting the whole range. It's so it's so weird. And I, and, and I think that's and what it I is love of about the time, it. too. Yes, I do love it, too, because they are very of the time, very, you know, full body uniform or like boots that are part of uniforms and and, and very put together looking. Yeah, very Adamski looking, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Gentlemen from space, your your Valiant Thor types. Yes, your Valiant Thor, who uh, I think Valiant Thor is due for a return, really needs to come back, get into some kind of political office, and really, you know, start uh, shaping uh, this country a little bit better. I think, but you know, maybe Got over strong time. chin and jawbone. Yeah, he'll, yeah. He'll, he'll convince everyone of him. You know, you got to have those Jimmy Stewart looking guys. You know, back in. Uh, just sitting there in Congress, you know, it, it just got to happen. <laughs> he he was probably in the Rat Pack. He probably, probably like you know that's the secret, secret Rat Pack of Valiant Thor. Yeah, he, he's the he's the fifth Beetle of the Rat Pack. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, fly yeah. me to the moon. He co-wrote it. Yep. He say that. Yep. Uh, originally wanted to call it Fly Me to Venus, but it just uh, didn't have, didn't roll off the tongue very well. It's understandable. Maybe in a few more decades, (laughs) E.T. Absolutely. So uh, 1954, there's kind of a flap going on in um, Brazil and uh, Venezuela. And uh, Dr. Olavo Fontes will later go on to kind of document how unique the flap was because it looked as if... um, this is back during the time when orthotony, the idea that uh, UFOs traveled in straight lines was a, like a big deal and a theory that he was trying to posit. But uh, in the southernmost state, Rio Grande do Sol, um, it was the scene of this intense UFO flap. And on the evening of December 9th, Almira da Costa e Rosa was cultivating his crops of French beans and corn when he heard a sound, quote, like a sewing machine. And that is terrifying. A sewing machine. No, thank you. Um, yeah, it, that is described. Yeah. As the sound of, a, and it, cause that, that is almost has a, a very, it's like a repetitive and annoying mm-hmm. sound to it. That does sound like an engine. that isn't working right. If it's like a sewing machine in the air, that yeah, it's definitely scary. Yeah, no, that, is, that is, uh, that is, uh, terrifying. I don't even want to think about it, but, you know, interestingly enough, this is not going to be the only time that you hear uh, the sounds of a sewing machine in the air. But uh, these nearby cattle, they just like scattered as this uh, object resembling a, quote, explorer's hat, uh, which was cream colored and enveloped in smoke. And it came down nearby and three strange men exited the object and started to examine a barbed wire fence, as you do. And. Almira dropped his hoe, um, you know, which <laughs> it happens, you know, this whole scene right now. Hold on. We'll, we'll, we'll stop at that dropping hose. But this whole scene of a cream colored explore, quote unquote, explorers hat. I mean, you just, what is Indiana Jones hat just trademarked? You can't say that. That's what I guess that's what this thing is shaped like. Pretty much. Sounds like a sewing machine. Looks like cream colored Indiana Jones and it's full of smoke and then it just crashes. I think these guys definitely are these aliens are messed up or something. Immediately, immediately they're like, oh, check out this barbed wire fence. Yeah, uh, they probably high on something while they're uh, making this descent here and just like, oh, yeah, barbed wire fence. I haven't seen one of those in like a long time. So. They've forgotten they've crashed their Indiana Jones hat already. Yep. 
So uh, Almira is dropping the, this hoe, and one of the men just kind of smiled and approached and uh, just kind of picked it up and handed it back to him very politely. And uh, the smiling alien kind of just plucked up a few plants and then just walked back toward their craft. Uh, you know, the idea of flying saucers and aliens, this is something that uh, was kind of unknown to Almira at the time. And that's something that you kind of read over and over again is like in these rural farming villages, you know, they have no concept of UFOs, at least. So they say, but uh, they looked. They really say it. I was actually looking into kind of what, uh, like, some what science fiction would even been mm-hmm. influenced people. You know, people out there, and from what I could read, a lot of, I mean, a lot of farmers in in his situation were illiterate. Didn't really have access to you know television or movies or anything. Yep. I mean, there's always the chance. I mean, some of the there was science fiction that was popular in Brazil. Like they were really into Jules Verne like the turn of the century and everything, but they, they were more into like, not into like UFOs and aliens, more like utopian future with Brazil being this, you know, standing next to Europe as this utopia. That was their science fiction. It wasn't uh, so much meant from Mars and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, that's, that's totally understandable. I can, I can definitely see why that would be the case, but um, yeah, they, these aliens, they looked very human. They had your typical contacty features, long blonde hair, medium build, broad shouldered. And uh, the only difference was that they had pale skin and slanted eyes. Uh, that was the main difference. But they wore these light brown coveralls that were kind of fastened to their shoes. And Almira's initial thought was that they must be pilots from some other country. And interest. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's a good thought to have. It's a, it's an honest thought to have in that, in that kind of case, but I uh, think they are right now too, to be honest, but yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, one day later and approximately one mile later, uh, Pedro Moraes, uh, went to investigate a commotion with his fowls, which, uh, you know, don't be messing with the man's fowls here. It's not cool. Don't, don't, just don't do it. And, uh, you know, he was uh, kind of afraid that there those was are party files. So yeah. Oh, no, God, man. You don't want to commit those. You really don't want to commit those. No, I meant the files themselves. Those were his party. <laughs> files. OK, sorry. Uh, but they, you know, he was a little afraid that uh, there was a hawk that was, uh, you know, s- starting some trouble. So he spotted an uh, quote that had uh, an object that had a bottom like an enormous polished brass kettle so uh you know interesting descriptions here it's hovering it's oscillating in the air it's kind of making a noise like a sewing machine you know it's uh it's a popular sound here it's definitely the same thing uh, i don't know if this was some homemade weird knockoff ufo uh but it, yeah it is interesting to have these very close to each other both sound like i've never heard a ufo described sound or anything other than a sewing machine described as sewing machine so right. specific and pretty much yeah the same shape so something was they were seeing something yeah um, but before this one i was going uh don't there's the only thing alien about this i guess is maybe the indiana jones hat but it just sounds like three guys who didn't do really do anything exceptional except have cool pilot suits on yeah <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, exactly. And, you know, Pedro didn't like anybody trusting on his property. Uh, So he headed for him. He made a beeline right for these uh, aliens and one raised their arm in a warning while the other just kind of ran forward towards him. So one figure knelt down and started kind of picking tobacco plants from the ground. Uh, And then uh, the two just like 
re-entered their craft and just took off. You know, like, like I'll distract him for a second. We need this tobacco. We you know? we gotta. You know, I need a cigarette, and uh, this is the only way we're gonna get it. So, uh, yeah, this is. We have to come all the way to Earth and pick it from this guy. He's the only person on this planet. A few that are few that are left that don't know what aliens are yet. So we might get away with it. Yep. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Pedro, you know, uh, he was also another farmer that had never heard of flying saucers before. Uh, And this is a a banger quote here, quote, when told that the Brazilian government was anxious to get one of these little men dead or alive, he vowed he would shoot one if he got the chance. (laughs) When was the government so saying they were so anxious for the population to start shooting aliens? (laughs) I I'm not sure, but uh, like it's just a poster hanging in the libraries, all these different ones, and they're like normal looking guys. They might these are the aliens. Yeah, so I was like, well. yeah, uh, you gotta watch out for the slanted eyes uh, and the long blonde hair. That combination, you know, right there, alien, totally alien. And if they're picking That's your a crops in the air with their their cream colored a smoke machine that's keep flying around. Yeah, yeah. Sound like a sewing machine. If they got a, if it sounds like a sewing machine, and you're outside, you better shoot to kill. You are uh, allowed to shoot these guys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. they just sound like guys. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So yeah, a good portion of these uh, early humanoid cases in Brazil, uh, definitely human, more human features. Uh, Antonio Vias Boas, for instance, like uh, they were pretty, they're pretty much human-ish looking. Though I don't really know if he got a good look at the dudes and kind of like the gimp suits there, but like eh, he kind of got to assume. I don't think he was worried about them at the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they, they also do the kind of the sign language, like in the Boas case, like it didn't wasn't the big thing. The woman like pointed to her stomach and then the stars at yeah. the end. Like they they know they can't really. These aren't the kind of aliens that are communicating telepathically at all. Like that has not entered. No. Um, and as far as any kind of these cases go. So if you are separating all these, these are not telepathic. They're very humanoid, very human looking, and they just have a ship. Yeah. So, and weapons. Yep. Um, along the southern coast of Brazil in Sao Sebastião, a, a professor of Roman law named Jao de Freitas uh, Guimarães was sitting near the shore when a luminous hat-shaped UFO approached from the ocean and settled near him. A, a metallic stairway emerged uh, from the pot-bellied exterior of the object, and two tall men emerged with long, fair hair to the shoulders and fair complexions. Quote, their appearance was youthful, and they had wise and understanding eyes, end quote. Um, yep. Uh, I'm going like to assume that they have... Frank Sinatra eyes. That's just that's the go-to in this case. <laughs> At least Again, yes, yeah, so we go back to the Rat Pack here. Yeah. But I'm going back to Indiana Jones because saying this thing is just coming over the ocean. I'm thinking of the intro of the map with the plane flying mm-hmm. over the ocean. Now, now they should make that his hat for the new one, just flying around. Yep, just a uh, just a hat looking like a UFO flying around. I, I'm I'm down with this. There was a UFO in the last uh, Indiana Jones movie. Why? Maybe he'll have one in the, in the sequel. Right. Uh, it's got to happen shape when he goes to Brazil. I mean, you you have, uh, you know, Indiana Jones has gotten more fantastical as it's gone on. So it, it's got to happen. It's just got to happen. So. I think I just wrote Indiana Jones six. Uh, yeah. At least yeah. It's uh, the outline. Uh, you know, uh, get this man paid. 
get them paid, you know, like give them the money. Uh, so these were these beings clad in green one piece suits. Uh, they approached the professor who leapt to his feet and asked in Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, French and English where they came from. He received no response, but he but felt that they were inviting him on board their craft. So uh, professor he, showing off he's like all right let's see how many languages i can do this in and they probably understood all of them like let's just make him keep going yeah it, it's kind of like I, th- I if i recall i think stefan mikulak during the um falcon lake incident talked to that open hatchway in more than one language uh if i recall but like uh yeah it's like uh showing off there a little bit but i get it i get it cool um i dig it Gotta let those uh, aliens know. Maybe they speak one of these languages. Uh, but he feels the his reservations just kind of falling away as he walked to the craft. He climbed up the stairs and he saw a, a, a small crew of like three or four beings. And they took him for a ride and just, you know, brought him back. And uh, unfortunately, he found that um, his watch wasn't working anymore. You know, just busted so that's kind of a i don't know how much of a bummer that is but you know i'll trade a broken watch for going in a a spaceship for sure yeah maybe we can maybe we could put that out to the universe because like i think (laughs) exchange program going yeah yeah one of the most infamous cases like the all of these cases have occurred outside of the Valley of the Old Women, but one of the most infamous cases to come from the region is known as the Belo Horizonte Cyclops case. Uh, and, you know, in the pages of the local paper, O Diario, uh, was a report about an encounter involving three young boys, uh, two brothers, Fernando and Ronaldo Escatillo. Guaberto and their friend who lived across the street, Jose Marcos Gomez Vidal. And uh, this is the evening of August 28th, 1963. And these three boys stepped outside into the garden to wash a coffee percolator using water from the nearby well. And uh, Fernando was the first to kind of reach the garden and found it like strangely illuminated, you know, kind of, you know, take it aback a little bit, but like he was assuming it was, a, you know, the moon uh, was out at that time. So he dismissed it. So Jose Marcos was the first to reach the uh, bucket that they were using to um, mm. clean this percolator, which was basically a repurposed gasoline can. Uh, and it was Reynaldo standing behind him who noticed that the glow was not, in fact, coming from the moon, but a spherical object hanging above them in the air. Uh, it was uh, 3.5 meters or about 11 feet wide and had transparent luminous walls that were divided by small squares. Like this is a spherical, uh, like a large sphere just like floating in the air. There are these two rods that look like antenna just kind of jutting out of the top and uh, making this V shape. They had these kind of like balls on their tips and a central vertical rod that would kind of like attach in the middle. So uh, it's it sounds like a Jetsons, um, mm, almost very Jetsony, very space age. Yeah. You know, 60s description of something when you've got the rods with the little ball in the end. It's like, oh, you mm-hmm. make this thing alien looking. You can put those on. 
Exactly. Like this is, it's not what you would think a UFO is. It's very um, rudimentary in many ways. Like it's, it's, it's literally just like a a floating sphere. Like it looks like kind of like those uh, big ass, like hamster wheels or, or or something like, uh, or those like big ass. It's kind of like a balloon boy situation here, but a little bit bigger. And uh, you know, just, uh, just a, it's just floating in the air. It's, it's that it's kind a bubble of rod floating yeah. or flying around. Yep. So, you know, through these transparent walls, four individuals could be seen inside seated on one-legged stools. And according to the report that appeared in a special issue of flying sauce review, quote, one of the persons occupying the rear seat had a masculine appearance and was more strongly built than the others. Um, and then, so, like he could from his vantage point he could see like this kind of row of three so there's this like male figure there's a woman with long blonde hair in the next seat and then up uh one more seat is this male figure of of similar there and they're all similar builds but uh you know this particular person in the front he's sitting at a control panel with a screen on it manipulating some controls uh, quote, all were wearing a sort of diver's suit and had their heads in round transparent domes or helmets. They presented a virtually uniform appearance, including their clothing. The trunks of their bodies were clad in something chestnut colored. Below the waist, the clothing was white down as far as the knees. And from where it was uh, black as far as the legs, uh, they went into black boots, uh, the boys said. The uniforms seemed to be made of leather and were very wrinkled in the parts corresponding to the limbs and chest of the crew. And, like, there is nothing worse than wrinkled leather. It's just, it's a problem, and nobody wants to deal with that. It's oh, and who wants to be in space? Yeah. In space with leather. And, again, another almost Jetson-y reference when you think, only thing you think of with, you know, the single leg of the chair, you mm-hmm. picture, you know, the chair from a floating around. But then it almost, almost like you feel like it, uh, Star Trek where you've got, a, you've got your little crew going here. But the diver suits, man, that really, that triggered something I had been um, thinking about a lot lately and uh, is the Laredo UFO crash, the mm-hmm. t- Tomato Man alien. And that was one of the only other times that a trans, either a dome or a dome-shaped head, they, they used to call it the Cyclops, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that far off to con, you know to consider. And their their ships were also weird, multi-level things with crews and, and almost a diver-looking thing. Interesting, interesting connection. This this guy and this in this whole crew. Yeah, uh, we we've got connections here, folks. Uh, there was a fourth figure, it was similar to the other three, who was kind of seated next to the woman that uh, wasn't. Uh, you know, immediately in their vantage point. This is the being that exited the craft. Uh, these two parallel shafts of yellow light appeared at the bottom of the object. Uh, and this being just like descended slowly to the ground. And this figure moved towards Jose Marcos, who was oblivious to everything that was going on at this point. His friends hadn't even like called out to him. And it's just, he's just like continuing to he's working. Oh, they're on still this. cleaning the coffee pot, right? Yes. Yeah. Just oh, the, or the gas can. Right. He, yeah. These kids got to get to work. They got to get this coffee made. Right. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, bent down. Uh, this this being walks over and he, he's about to 
uh, kind of stretch out and touch Jose Marcos on the shoulder. And, you know, interpreting this as a threat, Fernando jumped onto Jose Marcos to protect him. And the humanoid looked from Fernando to Ronaldo. Uh, and the pair were kind of just like unable to move away. It just seemed like um, a little bit of paralysis happening here. But the entity made a series of hand gestures moved his head in odd ways and spoke unintelligible words. And in doing so, the boys felt the fear that had, you know, just like gripping them, like melt away. Everything's kind of just, you know, cool. Oh, now. I'm sorry, Cyclops. You just startled us at first, looking like the creepy diver from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll listen now. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, in a calmer state, they were just like able to, you know, check things out, observe things. Uh, and, and this figure was tall, it was just, uh, at least six and a half feet tall, had only one eye, and his skin had kind of like a reddish tinge to it. And atop the man's helmet was a halo-shaped uh, small antenna just kind of jutting out from it. Um, See the thing that, that crashed in Laredo? It's called Tomato Man, mm -hmm. and it's got a round, reddish head with a diver suit. Mm -hmm. sounds, like the, sounds like they saw the same thing uh, much later. What year was this? This is 63. This is 63, and that's, we're talking like 48, 49 mm -hmm. for uh, Laredo. Oh, okay. Yep. So similar beings. Um, uh, of the of the being's eye, this was Jose Marcos's observation. Quote, he is emphatic that the central part of the eye, instead of having a round pupil, had merely a horizontal darker streak uh, above the eye moving frequently. There was a dark projecting area, which the boys took to be an eyebrow. <laughs> this thing sounds terrifying they're like no he's cool it's like i thought you said he was cool like he's getting worse the closer we get to him got one eye got one <laughs> got, <laughs> got one eyebrow uh, one eye diver you know got a unibrow situation here happens you know you do what you can uh it's not much you can do when you have one eye though yeah you 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 know, you can't solve the. If you had one eye and two brows, it'd be weirder. Uh, yeah, it would be. <laughs> it's, it's, it, Just shave it, the little middle part off. Yeah, it, it's. Um, yeah, it, people wouldn't even know how to react to that. I wouldn't know how to react to that. But this, figure, this creature makes no sense. You can't draw him like this. No. Give him one brow if he's got one eye. You yeah. can't make him look at like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, at least. Uh, whatever forces uh, put this being into creature uh, into the world. Like it's it just, at least it makes a little more sense, but this uh, being, he just kind of sits down on the edge of the well and he's facing, you know, the machine is back to the children and Fernando moves closer and he's prepared to hit this figure in the back uh, of the helmet with a brick. <laughs> so um, this Strange. If they caught on. They're like, "All right, yeah, yeah, could yeah. Chill. it's fine. Have a seat. We're just, we're just cleaning our percolator. You can just watch." And then they're gonna jump them with a brick. Yeah. How do you, how do you then go inside and explain to your mother? Oh, we just killed an alien in the backyard with a brick. Like, I, I don't know how you explain that to your mother. Well, there's probably those wanted posters still around. They're probably like, "We're rich. We hit it." Yeah, because it's an easy, the aliens and 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 the populace they are both ready to just throw down. There's no there's no peace was never an option in Brazil. No, this is kind of like uh you know the Walter White moment of you know when 
this uh, kid goes from being peaceful human to uh, murdering uh, alien rampage in like two seconds. That's just how it happens. It's uh, it's a, it's a tale of Zelda. Welcome time. to Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's the line. Yeah, it is the line. Um, so as he's going to hit this figure in the back, uh, the uh, Cyclops just jumps up to his feet, turns towards the boy. <laughs> Uh, and he releases a yellow beam of light from his chest, which was striking Fernando in the hand, which caused him to drop the brick. Um, I love this scene. Like he just turns like, whoa, whoa, pew, pew. Like, right. Like, whoa, calm down. Yeah. Like a He-Man figure. He's got laser. You don't know where the laser is going to pop out of. But exactly. yeah, the beam, it, it reminds me of the, the Phil Schneider thing. The beam, mm-hmm. uh, crispy curtain in his left foot. Uh, yeah. The beams just coming out of sometimes belt buckles, sometimes out of weapons, sometimes just out of their chest. Yeah. And you know. That if they're coming across the galaxy, they're sharpshooters. You can't even come close to messing with that. They know what they're doing. They know how to aim that thing. Just, uh, just don't like, don't take matters into your own hands unless you know you feel threatened. Then you know take up that brick. But uh, you know things seem He's to like be you cool. guys were doing the same thing mm-hmm. twenty million years ago or whatever. You know, it's like your ancient ancestors were trying to hit us with bricks. We have lasers. We've always had them. Yeah, you know, it's just it's it's always been a problem. But, uh, you know, the the tall, the tall humanoid then kind of looks up to his friend in the sphere, the one in the front, you know, and uh, he kind of makes this gesture uh, as if to say, look, Bob, don't do it. Just just don't. We're, we're, it'll cause a scene. Uh, quote, in a strange language, in an extremely loud voice and with many gestures with hands and head and eye. The man now seemed to be trying to make himself understood by the children who stood there passively watching him. Forming a circle with his thumb and index finger, the man traced various circles in the air around the first circle with the index finger of the other hand uh, talking the entire time. Then he pointed to the three boys and with a certain degree of difficulty tried to place the palms of his hands against his own head as though making the gesture of sleeping <laughs> uh, sliding off the helmet or something when he's doing this yeah. and the kids are probably just looking at him like duh we don't know what you're doing like he's just making these weird I think he's flipping us off yeah uh, he was just trying to hit him with a brick I'm sure he's not saying something nice yeah uh, and then he pointed to the moon making a gesture of progressive elevation with his hands as though to indicate flying in that direction end quote <laughs> like, like i'm gonna punch you guys <laughs> to the moon that's yes. where you to go i hate you guys they are stopping me up there the circle i'm making that's them up there they want me to not kill you He's basically giving them the CM Punk, you know, go to sleep kind of motion. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing it right now. I'm seeing this is what's going to happen. <laughs> he was running around in a circle around him doing it. It was great. Yep. Um, uh, the being then walked in the direction of his craft. Jose Marcos wondered aloud if he would return. And in response, the being turned and made several motions as if responding to his question. Didn't really know what the you know response was, but kind of like those other farmers who had those uh, you know dealing with those people with their sewing machine sounding vehicles who are plucking things out of their feet their fields. This being plucks a flower, 
Um, and then he moves underneath the object, made a hand gesture, which kind of summoned the slight back, which brought him back on board the object. And then it rose very silently and kind of just like dowsing its light. It disappears into the distance. And uh, the boys ran into the house to tell their mother and she had noticed the, the that there was an odd light in the background in the backyard, but she, you know, didn't think it was weird. Um, you know, just kind of dismiss it, uh, you know, because it, it wouldn't have been the headlight of a car. There was no way it could have been that. So um, she looked at the terror on young Jose Marcos's face as he ran and just hid under one of the beds in the house. He's, he's just like terrified taken refuge under one of the beds and uh their father is pretty brave during it I'll, i'll give it to him he was a little brave during it i guess he just completely broke down after but none of these i mean every one of these stories yeah they they take flour or some tobacco Mm -hmm. and i mean they don't seem to be taking major things they're not you know completely screwing with their crops it seems like they're just taking little mementos yeah most of the time whatever yeah Uh, yeah exactly most of the time that's that's what it seems like so their father was at a neighborhood bar and he was called upon and told that strange people came to into his garden. So he ran home, went outside to examine the garden. He found a number of strange triangular marks along the route that the being was said to have been walking around and the depressions made into the ground were kind of deep. They're about five centimeters, you know, indicating that something very heavy, had uh, had made them, and you know that's it's only like a few inches in the ground, but it's still it's still something a little heavy. So, um, what's interesting about this case is the similarities that it has to a case that took place in the Canary Islands in 1976, and you know this is June 24th, 1976, and it involves a crop of onions that was found obliterated near Galata. Uh, and like the few plants that remained showed kind of signs of intense heat exposure. And according to one eyewitness, though, it was caused by a UFO. So, uh, you know, UFOs kind of apparently don't like onions in this case. But um, Dr. Francisco Julio Padron Leon, a general practitioner, uh, reported that a strange sphere, quote, looking like a compass uh, with a bluish gray hue, the size of a three-story house and with visible occupants who were very tall, had been seen in the area two days prior. So journalist Juan Jose Benitez, J.J. Benitez, uh, was handed this kind of fat file of UFO reports from a Spanish Air Ministry official on October 20th, 1976, and the last report in there was this particular Canary Islands case. So uh, J.J. Benitez is kind of one of the uh, Spain's uh, most preeminent uh, UFO investigators. Uh, like the Jamie covered. Musson. Yeah, oh, yeah. Jaime Musson is... Uh, Jaime Musson. Yes. Yeah, he is, a, uh, he is an interesting He's an interesting character. He is an interesting guy, man. I, I do... I, I am... <laughs> He's 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 great. If he's their their George Nori, then that's uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I I would want more from him. Especially get on rods. There's no way that they could be that he could be their George Nori unless he burns his mouth with pizza rolls. That's the only way that it can happen at this point. <laughs> but, 
Um, he would have to be more, more. Yeah, it has to be a different food. He can't take his full, full thing. You know, he's got a uh, like. You know, I went to get him. I got a microwave. You know, uh, a hot pocket. Maybe he, he ups it. Like, uh, you know, uh, pizza rolls are one thing. You do a hot pocket. And you're going for. Oh man, you. It's kind of like the. Um, the juggernaut of the pizza rolls just formed into one, but a powerful force that will give your mouth third degree burns. Uh, you know, just uh, totally. We don't want to. We don't want to amp this war up. Nor you'll have to try to take him down. We we need both of these men talking. That, it, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, but uh, yeah, this uh, so this all started nine twenty seven p.m. south of the island of Fuerteventura. Uh, the Spanish Navy had a ship positioned near the island. Uh, a th- and this is like a corvette called Atrevida, and there was like multiple crew members that observed quote a vivid yellowish, come bluish light moving out from the shore towards our position, and then climbing as it did so. At first, we thought it was an aircraft with its landing lights on. Then, when the light had attained a certain elevation, 15 to 18 degrees, it became stationary. The original light went out, and a luminous beam from it began to rotate. It remained like this for approximately two two minutes, and then a vivid great halo of yellowish and bluish light developed and remained in the same position for over 40 minutes, even though the original phenomenon was no longer visible. Two minutes after the great halo... The light split in two parts, the smaller part being beneath in the center of the luminous halo. There was a blue cloud uh, appeared at the part from which the bluish nucleus had come vanished. The upper part began to climb in a spiral, rapid and irregular, and finally vanished. None of these movements affected the initial circular halo in any way, which remained just the same as the whole time. It's glow, it's glow lighting up part of the land and part of the surface of the sea beneath it, from which we could deduce that the phenomenon was not very far away from us, but was close. The strange object which had been observed by the witnesses aboard the Spanish warship to the south of the island of Fuerteventura covered the distance of 85 nautical miles between the sighting position and the north of Grand Canary Island in three minutes at an estimated speed of some 3,600 kilometers per hour. So this is, this thing is like. It's not so much a ship. It's just this giant, what, ball, occasionally spiraling, making, you know, Mm. some weird light display. Uh, Some elements of it do sound like something that could be, uh, you know, a meteorological event or something. So it's like a sun dog or something like that. I've recently been talking about mass hysteria and things like that, like, um, like the the Fatica, Fatima and the uh, Miracle of Sun and things like that. A lot of a lot of older mass UFO sightings have to do with uh, with staring at the sun a little too long. And uh, but this this sounds like it's a little more like this. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's hard to just put this away as a weather uh, event. Yeah, um, and I'm gonna send you a, a, a an image that was created of this uh, of this in the chat. So. Um, yeah. It'll, it'll show up there in a second. But uh, click on that and tell me what you make of it. It's... Uh, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's... Um, so, 
I'll I'll describe what I'm looking at. It does look like a giant blue bubble with a looks like a disco, like a uh, like a almost like a stripper pole coming down. It's like a little disco going on inside this place. There's some great lights going on. Two really big headed aliens in very muscular red tight suits. Yeah, like on a like on a floating platform. It was a really cool image. Yeah. What's interesting here is somebody was actually able to get a photograph of this thing when it was like really bright. Uh, I'll, I'll send you an image of that now. And it's it's absolutely it's huge. It's gargantuan. Yeah, I want to say the, uh, the it's almost like you hear in their description and it's like you're having a hard time. Like it's smiling around. It's doing this. And it's like the hard to actually wrap your mind around some of it. That, this is a really cool image. And I know you post so many great uh so many great UFO images all the time. I I, I know you're going to have this up there. This is a. Uh... It's oh, okay. So yeah. Okay. So this is an actual photo that was taken during the time though. Yes. Yep. You can't see any of the cool disco dancing. No, or you can't. The cool but bar, like, but it's but there's something going on. Right. Right. So there's like some giant light that's just like hanging out. It looks like it's, you know, it's it's not on the ground or anything like that. It's not being produced by anything on the ground. It's being produced in the air. So it, it's an interesting photograph. I don't know that anybody's like been able to debunk it, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's just an interesting photograph. So um, 11 other eyewitnesses had seen the object in the area, including a doctor at Guia, Dr. Don Francisco Julio Padron Leon. Uh, along with two witnesses, he saw a gigantic ball of an electric blue color hovering 50 meters or 165 feet away. So he observed this object from pretty close, like that seeing those humanoids up close. Um, the object hung for just uh, about six and a half feet above the ground. Uh, and he was going to visit a patient that night when he saw the object from a taxi that he was taking in the in the taxi with him was the driver, Francisco Estevez, and along for the ride was the passenger, Santiago Del Pino, the son of the sick woman the doctor was going to visit. Uh, quote, we were chatting in normal fashion when, coming around a bend, we were utterly amazed to see, about 60 meters or so from us, a perfect sphere, as perfect as though marked out with a compass, with a very beautiful gray or light bluish periphery. We experienced a terrible feeling of cold. The chauffeur even started trembling, especially when the taxi's radio, which had been turned on, suddenly cut out. The sphere was there, stationary and still, a few meters off the ground. I could not believe my eyes and said as much to my two companions. But it was a fact. That thing was there all right, in the middle of the darkness of the night, and inside it were two strange... And enormous beings. I can give you a description of them down to the last detail, for we had them under observation for almost 20 minutes and at a very short range from us. The sphere was transparent, though its walls uh, you could see perfectly clearly, the stars and the sky behind it. It was just like a gigantic soap bubble. What I mean to say is that it did not look metallic, but it looked like glass. Its diameter was about that of a two-story house. Inside it, there was a sort of platform, silver-colored, and on the platform, some panels and two huge figures. The panels or instruments had no corners or right angles. Everything about them was round. 
we were astonished at the great size of the beings, maybe two meters, uh, 80 or three meters. So like these beings are over like nine feet tall. They're huge. Um, they were wearing black divers helmets and their clothing, which was very tight fitting was a shade of red that I have never seen in my life. Their hands seemed to be enclosed in big cones, also black. I could see no sign of fingers anywhere. The two beings were facing hands and cones. That's a good, yeah. I'll yeah. just interrupt you for a second. That detail, that reminds me of Pascagoula immediately. Um, right. But right. also again, the diver helmet, the uh, mm -hmm. going back to this, this prototype creature uh, being, whatever it was. Yeah. I, and my question though is about, is about why, I mean, this thing isn't a ghost. It, no. Why is, why is it getting suddenly cold? And mm -hmm. you cannot kind of maybe understand electrical things not working. That happens a lot. The weather change. I'm trying to think of stories. You hear that in some, I know in, uh, in the, Oh, what's the one in, uh, up in Massachusetts with, uh, Oh, dang it. They were on the new unsolved mysteries recently. I should know. I uh, talked about that. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Tom, what's his name? Yeah, he, uh, the guy that owns Tom the, Reed. Yeah, the, uh, the guy Tom that owns Reed, the, the limo service. Man. Yeah, owns yes. limo service and, and all that stuff. Guy yeah. who bought tigers from Tiger King guy. He actually yes. revealed that on a show called Ghost Hunting in New England, completely on accident. Yeah. <laughs> After Tiger King had been out, it was pretty great. Uh, yeah, Tom Reed. But his story, his story involved uh, the weather changing and stuff as well and getting cold. Okay. I'm just thinking, what does this giant bubble do? It's, like it's just like sucking, you know, stuff from the atmosphere and energy around it. Like, how does this, this thing work? Right. It, it, you know, kind of makes you think, maybe, what if it was? Because, you know, like leaning into that theory that, you know, spirits are able to suck the energy out of you know any kind of area whether that be a person or whatever manifests as cold or something like that yeah it's uh it could be yeah yeah so these two beings are facing each other other they're moving their hands about and they're kind of operating some levers um they were in profile to us. hands. Yeah, yeah with their weird no hands Those doing things around in there <laughs> Um, they were in profile to us. What astounded me personally was the disproportional size of the back part of their heads. Um, so like, yeah, like, like I mentioned earlier, like the back portion of their heads is kind of like, uh, very huge. It's very big. Um, uh, and kind yeah, of like xenomorphy alien yeah. almost not that, that, not that far along, mm -hmm. but definitely it, it cones back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the chauffeur switched on the big spotlight, and when he did this, the machine started to rise uh, till it was level with the top of a nearby house. Then we saw a transparent tube inside the sphere, and a bluish gas was coming out of this tube and moving around the sphere. And then the sphere started to grow in size till it was as big as a 20-story building. So this thing is just, like, increasing in size. Uh, the beings and the platform, the panels, meanwhile, all remaining their original size. We were terrified and we turned the car around and went to some nearby houses and went inside one of them. The people there told us that their television had just blacked out. We remained there in the house with the family looking out through the window at the sphere. When the thing had expanded to the enormous size, the gas or fluid that was moving around inside it stopped moving. Then, in a flash, after giving out a high-pitched whistle, the thing shot away towards the island of Tenerife. And as it went, 
It even changed shape and became spindle-shaped, surrounded by a a big, vivid white halo. When I talked later, when we were calmer, with all of the other eyewitnesses who had seen it, our accounts of what we had seen were in perfect agreement. And I will tell you something else. When I was looking at the beings, I deliberately said to my companions that they were blue. I did this on purpose, trying to prove whether it was an optical illusion on my own part. And the others replied that I was wrong, that the clothing was red. So then I felt I had proved the reality of what I was seeing, end quote. So I what I love about that, that is how detailed that is for a guy who was standing there observing that for like 20 minutes. He took away took away a lot of detail. He did. And I like it. It's interesting, whatever they, you know, so they put the spotlight on his thing. They're like, I don't know, turn on the grow gas and the <laughs> bubble just gets nope. really big and, and then just shoots off and almost like goes into hyperspace with a little halo around it and everything with its, uh, it, it is like a bubble. Like somehow they're mm-hmm. just like are able to just blow it up and expand it more with yep. gas. They've got the good, they've got the goods that, uh, you know, make this stuff, uh, bigger and bigger. So, um, I'll just say, I don't think this guy could make this up. No. So so that makes it more believable. And the fact that you have, like, the Spanish Navy observing something that is large, that is kind of within their view, maybe not as, you know, detailed, but still from, like, one island away, we're like, oh, yeah, there was that big thing over there. Uh, It's hard to miss it. We took photos of it. Um, So that guy's like, I was there. I'll tell you everything, you know, get your get your best. Uh. A timely sketch artist. Yep. Uh, And it was two days after the sighting that a large circular area, 30 meters or about 98 feet wide, was discovered in a field of onions in Galadar. Everything was obliterated in the circle, evidence that the area had been exposed to intense heat. Shortly after the object departed, a similar, if not the same object, was spotted in Puerto de la Cruz on the west coast of the island, and from the nearby island of La Palma. The same report made references to radar readings associated with the craft. Photographs were taken in the southern area of the Gran Canaria Island. So that's where that was. So wait, are you trying to... You're trying to deposit some theory here that this thing runs off of onion gas is burning onion fields to yeah. suck up these onion fumes and that's helping their bubble expand. Scott. Yep. That's uh that's a good theory right there. Um I don't think I can I can't dispute that. I can't dispute that. You know, it's onions they, they need them for some reason, but you know, that's uh man, just, we have no emotions. We must cry somehow. Yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, like who would have thought aliens would come to Earth Earth to bully some onions? You know, like uh, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, bullying. The, you get uh, to freak out the Navy a little bit. Yeah. At least, you know. Yeah. Uh, we bullied some onions. What are you going to do about it? Navy. Take a picture. It's about it. Uh, didn't really work out for Ed Walters, but, you know, it is what it is. Um Read my lips. He never <laughs> said he was abducted. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so from 1970 through 1971, uh, Itaparuna, a uh, municipality of Rio de Janeiro, was the location of two very prominent contact cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the 
previous two years, like uh, 68 to 69, there had been an increase in UFO sightings in the area. On September 25th, 1971, Benedito Badita Miranda, a 48-year-old truck driver, stumbled in his front door, clothes soiled with mud and spots that resembled asphalt. His eyes were red as mud and caked on, uh, and there was mud caked on his clothing. He bathed his eyes and went just straight to bed. Woke a few hours later, complaining of a headache, unable to bear bright lights of any kind. He would then make a statement to the police, quote, on the night of September 24th, 25th, 1971, uh, he was returning from Itaparuna to Cataguesis uh, at the Carangola Bridge on Highway BR-040. He came upon a strange round object in the middle of the road and blocking the passage of his car. Upon approaching the said object, he saw emerge from its interior two men of small stature, each measuring approximately 30 centimeters or 11.8 inches in height. Then the said creatures took from the belt uh, one of this big roundest object resembling a torch from which came a blue beam and at times reddish light. They threw the beam in his direction, and when it struck him, he was lifted up and suspended in the air as though he were a bird. The more- brought up Ed, Ed Walters. <laughs> Ed Walters got hit with a blue beam, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, only I don't think Ed felt like he was a bird. Um, I felt like I think he felt like it was un-American. <laughs> it's true. Someone's about to get a lake sweep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh the more powerful the beam of light grew, the higher he rose in the air until he was at a height of about 50 meters or 164 feet. He felt totally paralyzed, being un, uh, being unable even to cry for help. After some five minutes or so had passed, the lights of a car appeared on a high area towards uh, Retiro and Murare. The said creatures then slowly lowered the beam of light towards the informant's car and placed him inside the car without even touching him with their hands. The whole thing had been done solely by the power of the beam of light coming from the aforementioned strange object, uh, torch, as they say. Uh, And then they entered the round object, which flew up into the sky at an incalculable speed. The informant stated that it took him about 30 minutes to return to his normal state, owing to the great fright he had suffered, end quote. So it's a torch. It sounds like mm-hmm. a wand to me. I'm also picked, I'm also kind of picturing the Loveland frog uh, right. wand, but yeah, these things are only 11 inches. Yeah. So they pack a little punch though. They can just float you around. They don't want to do anything with you just no. to show you. It's almost a fayish. They're, they're small in their, in their strange abilities. Yeah. That's just like, it's even more frightening because you know when you're talking about something that's like under a foot tall like i it just makes me uneasy like all all the way like uh in that uh uncanny valley of heights that scare the hell out of me it's definitely up there uh you know maybe towards the top under a foot and it's on two two legs i am immediately terrified so you know, like yeah. think about the scariest thing in uh, a fire in the sky would be it's those little ugly guys, mm-hmm. like the littlest guys, those really, really ugly little guys. Terrifying. Yeah. Yep. Uh, according to an interview with SBEDV, which is uh, one of Brazil's uh, 
preeminent UFO investigation groups. Benedito stopped his car on the bridge to check out a problem he was having with the suspension. He was confused as to why he fell asleep. And the next thing he remembered, it was 6.30 a.m. the next day. Uh, he continued stumbling. Uh, he continued uh, home, stumbling through the door, caked in mud and with red eyes. So, uh, yeah, he I don't remember out. where the mud came in. He had the mud early, you know, when he got home. Yeah. You, you're building up. All right, something's going to happen with mud, possibly asphalt. Definitely red eyes are going to happen. Mm-hmm. But he's like, no, nah, I floated in the air for a little bit, and they gently placed me through my car. Yep. Um, after waking up, uh, you know, aside from this intense pain that he was in, there was cut on his left arm and he felt a tingling sensation and a numbness in his hands. And there was this uh, reddish purple mark on his elbow and on his kind of left side. He continued to feel symptoms the day after and his eyes uh, were completely bloodshot and felt hot. Uh, the headache remained for six days and he suffered a week long bout of insomnia. Uh, Benedito didn't remember making the statement to the police, but he saw the paperwork and his signature on it. So he's like, yep, that's totally mine. That's a detail. I saw that too, where he's like, I remember this because they have a report of me writing that. I don't know. Does, does the report you signed count if you have no memory of writing it? Right. Did we just do a do over on this? Yeah. Uh, maybe he's it, like, I'm, I'm a trucker. I was hopped up on goofballs for a week before this happened anyway. Right. But uh, yeah, he's, he had some weird marks on him, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting case, but what's interesting here is that uh, it's not the only case like it. Um, in an article by Dr. Walter Bueller, who is um, one of Brazil's preeminent investigators, he investigated for decades. Uh, he notes a similar case that took place in Kempsey, Australia on a, a April 2nd, 1971. Quote, in Flying Saucer Review for July, August 1971, Eileen Buckle gives an account of the case of an Australian Aborigine who, on the night of April 2nd, 1971, through the window of his house, saw a round face pressed up against the glass, spying on what was going on. Then he felt his body rising upwards and being impelled through the upper part of the window and falling upon some steps outside. And then, panic-stricken, he took to his heels. Quote, the biggest surprise of all, however, was to come the next day in the form of amnesia, selective loss of memory, not total. Referring to the incident of the previous night, he now attributed the wound on his hand to an accident that he had had when he had put his hand, his fist through a neighbor's window uh, that he was mending. <laughs> so I think that actually goes the other way around. Yeah. I put my fist through the window, then I had to mend it. I don't yeah. know how I was mending windows with his fist. Yeah, mending windows and then, oh, sorry. But uh, I wasn't breaking in. I was trying to fix this crack here and I just happened to just punch your window in. Yeah, like, you know, I I saw you doing something and it kind of pissed me off, but I didn't mean to. It just it just happened. Uh, It's what you do. It's it's what you do. Um, At around the same time that the story of uh, Benedito Miranda was coming to light, another story involving Paulo Saitano Silvera was uh, also coming to light and his story had received so much publicity that he was making appearances on TV shows in Rio de Janeiro. 
Uh, Saitano walked into a clinic on September 23rd, 1971, and was treated by Dr. Munir Basad. Quote, I saw something ahead of me, Saitano said. I don't know what it was. I just don't know. I can't get control of myself. You, who are a doctor, you know me. There was no reason for seeing what I saw, end quote. Um, Dr. Surly Crespo was traveling along Highway RJ100, passing through Sararia with his father-in-law in the passenger seat. It was around 8 p.m. when he was flagged down by a man in the road. The man was disheveled, looking as if he had been in an accident. His car was turned halfway around on the shoulder. Uh, he approached the car and said, Man, I was nearly a goner. And that was Paulo Saitano. Paulo had been sweating profusely despite the fact that it was relatively cold outside. His face had a look of terror on it, and there were scratches on his left elbow. In irregular bursts of sentences, Paulo told the occupants of the car that he had been coming from Carangola when a UFO the size of a Volkswagen emitted a red light, which later turned to blue, blocking the road. His car was thrown sideways off the road, and he was drawn out of it, the door having opened by itself. Dr. Crespo brought Paulo to the police, where he gave a statement, and they all returned to the spot of the incident, having left Paulo's car there. His statement read, Mr. Commissioner, I beg to inform you, for whatever purposes may be deemed necessary, that at 2100 hours yesterday, September 22nd, 1971, there appeared at this police delegation the citizen Paulo Saitano Silvera, Brazilian native of the state, White, married, age 27, son of Julio Saitano Filho, uh, and... Uh, Capricorn. Yeah. Uh, they give, like, you know, his entire address. Um, that between... Whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't dox him here. Uh, I'm not going to dox him. Um, that between 1930 and 2100 uh, hours... He was coming from Tombos do Carangola, state of Minas Gerais, and traveling in his uh, in his car, registration number, whatever, along the highway linking us. And that's what I love about old UFO reports. They give every detail. like Everything. We we are leaving a lot out. His social security number was in here, you know, it's, his it's, pin numbers and everything. Yeah. Uh, it, linking us to the municipality is like the next municipality over at the spot called Soraria. His attention was aroused by a strange object, flying saucer in the middle of the road, which caused the paralyzation of his car although he cannot explain how this was the door of the car opened and he was drawn out as though a magnetic force were acting upon him and he was dragged into the interior of the object he is unable to say anything more and knows only that he was left beside the vehicle with some small abrasions and bruises on his left arm previously to that moreover on the tambos road the same object with a beam of light, red and also bluish, had tried to interrupt his passage, and he had already informed the chief of police in that town, Tambo, state of Minas Gerais, of this fact. Well, he stalked pretty much. He, yeah. he actually warned, like, oh, there is something flying around. It's just trying to stop me. I just want you guys to just get this on record. Like, All right. Yeah. Keep an eye out. Yeah. Um, 
the story that unfolds after this is is one in which uh paulo he's um he Paulo's a typewriter mechanic of all things, so he's got an interesting job. And he actually originally departed for home at about seven forty-five p.m. Uh, he ori- originally saw this luminous object kind of in his rearview mirror. He's going to encounter this thing four times before they eventually pull him out of the vehicle and do whatever they're going to do to him. So, like he has one experience and he gets away, you know, and, um, he has, uh, he has another one a little while later. This one tries to cut him off for a little bit, but ultimately he pulls away. Um, uh, it's, it's a long ass case, but eventually he's taken on board by three small figures who were about a foot tall they look like they were wearing kind of little like little hats, uh, almost like, you know, like Santa hats. They had like a little ball on the end of them. They bring him inside. He's uh, shot uh, with like this beam of light from the ceiling. And there's an interesting I'm, I'm going to share this image with you now because it's 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 another it's another banger image. Yeah, you're describing almost like fail. Like these little gnome guys or something. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I I would say that's that's pretty dang close. And they have kind of an MO, it seems, so far. So so far from these, from these stories, they like to bug guys or any people that are driving on the road. They somehow yeah. can, can trick them out of their car, or they just like to just bother people. Yeah, so uh, in this image, uh, please describe this image for our audience here, because it's... Um... Right? Okay, so <laughs> we're looking at an image of a very big guy in the ship, and he is looking up at a, a tiny man with, yeah, what looks like either an oil funnel or, yes, a little Santa hat, uh, walking around on a tiny little platform. It doesn't look to be much else in this, a very kind of sparse illustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's basically it. Like, um, they... The, the way that he framed it in the police is statement. Is he in his house or in the Simpsons house? Or is he on the <laughs> ship in this? He's on a ship. Um, okay, and, okay. He's got the rounded doorway. Okay. Yep. All right. So uh, eventually when they finally uh, stop him uh, on the road, he um, uh, these small beings approach the car and from some force they're able to like open the doors without actually touching them. So they open the doors. He gets out of the vehicle. They bring him on board. They kind of do this thing where they shine in this kind of light down uh, from the ceiling at him. And there's this like little platform above him on which one of the beings is walking across. And they ultimately like, he's the light guy, the little light guy on the shelf. He's like literally the elf on the shelf. Basically. In this image. And uh, yep. yeah, he's like, I found you. He's like, that doesn't exist yet. I'm not the elf on the shelf. Yeah. I got you in my beam. But uh, yeah, these, um, these short beings, they um, do whatever they do with them drag him back outside, like drag him on the asphalt and just like plop him up next to his car. Um, and then, yeah, he was just taken to a well-lit room um, and he keeps hearing this kind of like whistling sound and stuff, but ultimately brought back left next to his vehicle. Uh, and what's interesting here is that um, there was a house not far uh, from where this took place 
and there was a young boy that witnessed everything happening and even saw these small beings coming out and grabbing him and he ran inside he wasn't dealing with them he, he wasn't having anything to do with them and i don't blame him yeah it sounds more dramatic than just they're, they're using their little uh wand mm-hmm. to, to move him around the, yeah they, they do have a little more power in this where they, they're physically dragging him as we're getting the asphalt all over in the mud because i mean they're not picking him up let's be fair they are just dragging a, a guys around yeah basically for what purpose it, no one seems to say i guess there was no leo, leo sprinkle at the time that could go no. out there and find the real deal with them you know any kind of hip Gnosis. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that Paulo Satano would later go on to say that he had had he had multiple encounters with these beings following this incident and with UFOs. So kind of, uh, you know, like your abductee kind of syndrome here in which you, you're interacting with weird beings over and over and over and over again. But like it's an interesting case it's one that uh there's a lot of doubt around it apparently there are some conflicting statements that he gave but still an interesting one and there are also those banger images that they have associated with this case are just are fantastic uh just um it, I love it always it. they always seem to nail it when they do little alien guys it you know it gets me every time they make them look great yep yep um, there's no name for any little alien guy races, though, are there? Like, there's a lot of really well-known alien races. Are they just the little guys? Like, you know, like what would these be even called? No one's ever had that kind of communication with them, right? Um, I think there needs to be clarification in the future, and maybe uh, we could we could somehow work that out. Uh, you know, if you interact with these little beings, just uh, ask them what they want to be called. Because we don't know. Yeah, where are you from? Yep, just uh, what you doing, where are you from, um, you know, all that good stuff. Um, uh, the next municipality that we're looking at uh, is called uh, Pirasanunga, and it's in the state of Sao Paulo. Uh, and, like, the, these these cases are also just very, very strange. Um, it, the first encounter was investigated by Nigel Rimes, a Brazilian representative of Flying Saucer Review. And the article contains this banger quote, um, quote, on arriving in Pirasanunga, we drove straight to the police station. We arrived at the same time as a Chevrolet pickup truck with two corpses in the back. <laughs> Welcome to Brazil. <laughs> uh Rimes was there to investigate a UFO landing and occupant case involving a 19-year-old man named Tiago Machado. He first met with the local police chief who stated, uh, and the guy in the truck was the local police chief because he served more than one role. He was like police chief, kind of coroner a little bit, did a little bit of everything. Sure. Quote, first, uh, first uh, of all, gentlemen, I want to make it quite clear that I believe that flying saucers exist and are coming to Earth. After all, if we can get to the moon, there is no reason why people on other planets cannot come here. But I most definitely do not believe this story told by Tiago Machado. Uh, so he's, he's saying a lot of good things right off the bat. Like, all right, I'm all on board, Tola. Yes, I might also be on board. You know, probably know him better than any stranger. Yeah. Uh, so strong start here. Uh, the chief of police, Dr. Luis Carlos uh, de Toledo, uh, believed that a hallucination was the cause. But um, let's start with Tiago's account here. Quote, I woke up at about 7.30 in the morning and heard Dona Maria, she's the neighbor, shouting something about a mysterious object. 
I got up and went outside. There were quite a few quite a few people looking at something that looked like a parachute, but an anonymous man said it couldn't be a parachute because there was no one on it. The object was over on the hill in the grounds of Zoo Technica and was of a silvery bluish color. I watched it for a time and then went into the house to get my binoculars in order to see it better. It was a flying saucer and everybody was discussing it, end quote. Um, he asked his neighbor to accompany him, but she ultimately kind of refused. She was not not down with it. Um, quote, when I got to Chico Hansen's house in the IZIP grounds, I asked him to come with me. We went on together with uh, Dito Joanna. When we got to the slope, they went off to search for the lower part, and I went up the hill. Then I saw it and went on until it was about 10 meters or 32 feet away. It was a sort of disc made of silvery metal, like aluminum, with a dome top. It was about 4 meters, 13 feet in diameter, and stood on three legs, uh, a sort of tripod. I lifted my binoculars to see it better, and as I did so... The door here at the top of the object opened outwards and first one and then another man came out. They came out slowly and seemed to float down to the ground. They then walked towards me with slow steps and stopped about three or four meters or about nine or 13 feet. I could see two other men inside the saucer. They said something to me in a strange language I couldn't understand and I asked them, where they had come from, making signs. They made some signs to it, uh, to which led me to believe they had come down from the sky in sort of a spinning motion. Then I took a step backwards, and they came forward a step. I wasn't afraid, you understand, but I was a bit nervous. So I took out another cigarette. I had a packet of Kent in my shirt pocket with 15 left in it, and lit it from uh, the one that I was smoking. When I blew out the smoke, they seemed to think it was very funny, and they laughed. So I tossed the packet to one of them. It just fell to one side and a little uh, to the rear of him. Without turning his back to me, they they never once turned their backs to me. He's smart. They've been yeah. through the brick situation already. They're yeah. not turning our backs on us anymore. Yeah. Uh, they have been to alien planets, and it's clear they, they learned their lesson. Uh, he slowly leant sideways with his arm and hand outstretched, palm downwards. When the hand was about 20 centimeters or seven inches above the ground, the packet just floated up into his hand. He hadn't even touched it. Then he brought his hand into his thigh, and the packet vanished. It was strange. I didn't see a pocket or anything like that. It just disappeared. So this is kind I love of that. Th these are mine now. Yeah. yeah. Th th these creatures and these are these are human size, right? These aren't the little guys anymore, right? Right. This is right. more straight up. Yeah. I, yeah. I do like this that they think is very hilarious. Uh, the act of smoking a cigarette, you know. It, you, it, see, th you think they would kind of know all about it at this point? They know. I guess they do. Some of these just know so little about us. Yes. That, uh, that's super interesting to them. Yes. Uh, Tiago compared their clothing to the silver wrapper of a cigarette pack. So 
mean, cigarettes just like all they're featured a lot in this in this particular case. But um, and also, well, think back to like the Roswell material and, and yeah. other other debris from crashes always described as cigarette foil. I think yeah. they're just you, which came first, the alien alien stuff or the actual cigarette foil? Yeah, who knows? That's the tough one. Like that is that's the new chicken or the egg scenario. Um, you you've put it forth here, and uh, uh, yeah, we should be using that from now on. What do we do with all this alien foil we stole off that crash ship? I don't know. Put it in cigarette packs or something. Got it. <laughs> Well, or um, I'm, I'm reading Trinity right now, Jacques Vallée's book, and uh, it's about a UFO crash and like they ended up pulling some of that foil memory metal and they ended up using it uh, to kind of brace some like threads uh, and something that they were screwing down, like they repurposed it, which is kind of hilarious. But, uh, you know, it has multiple. Is there anything uses. that stuff can't do? Yeah, I love it. Exactly. Uh, you know, ingenuity. I lo- you love to see it. Um, so their skin had a yellow tinge to it. Their eyes were slanted, nose long and lips thin. They had black teeth and strange looking scars on their face. Their voices seemed to come out of a tube extending out from their suit below where the chin would be. The hands of the beings were very strange. Their palms were comically long and their thumbs further from the rest of the fingers. Soon after I had lit my cigarette, I thought they might want to take me for a ride in the saucer. So I took the strap from around my neck and put the binoculars on the ground. I thought I ought to leave some sort of indication that I had gone with them. But the two men looked at each other in a rather alarmed sort of way. So I picked them up again. So, like, this dude, talk about being arrogant. It's like, I'm just going to get a ride. I don't think anybody said anything about that, bud. <laughs> That's that, that was the other one, too. It, it's always when they're trying to do this communication. It seems like it was the other way around this time where it, the alien professor was like, I know a few different alien languages. I'm sure mm-hmm. this, this human guy, he'll figure out one of them. I'll speak a little draconian, a little uh, Zeta Reticulant on him. And he's like, yeah, 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 he doesn't understand anything. Yep. Um, and it's, uh, it's a shame it truly is, uh, again, they sound like the Pascagoula aliens. I'm sorry to bring, keep bringing it back to different connections, but when they talk about the weird long palms that comically mm-hmm. long and their thumbs are way separated. Yep. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, just, just very weird, but like, it's interesting how mannerisms like this kind of throw people off. Cause I think it was, uh, um, that, uh, that Christmas kind of alien fairy case from England in the seventies. I think I can't remember what that woman's name was in that case, but like those alien, those gray looking aliens that had like fairy wings and they came into her house. I think she upset them by giving them a cigarette. So, um, you know, maybe cigarettes aren't the best offering sometimes, or maybe just give them the tobacco straight up. Like in that other case, like, you don't need to they always yeah. a lot of people think aliens are trying to give us messages, keep us safe, you know, and, and definitely a little PSA about cigarettes. There's a lost case to me. I remember years ago hearing uh, an interview with someone on coast to coast, an alien abductee. And if any of your listeners can remember who this guy was, this guy was an alien abductee who would get physical and he would beat up 
uh, the aliens that were constantly abducting him. But he said that they respected him because of it. But one of the things they did for him was they gave him a gift one year, and it was this uh, a box with just all this just disgusting black matter. And he didn't know what it was. And they're like, that's all the tar in your lungs for all the cigarettes you smoked. And they basically healed his lungs completely and gave it to him as a gift. Now, if anyone remembers what that is, I've been searching for it for years. So if that rings a bell to anyone, at Bizarro Russ on Twitter, please. I have to find that guy. Yeah, um, that yeah, that's that's wild. Like aliens gifting you your own tar for your. <laughs> that guy was great though. He talked a ton. Like he just would go in George Norman. He's like, no, I just punch him in the face. I just curse at him. I go, stop picking me up. Stop doing this to me. And George's like, wow, cool. All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Um, uh, suddenly, Ditto, who was somewhere quite near. But out of sight, shouted my name. Then they suddenly walked backwards to the saucer and still facing me. They never turned their back to me the whole time, gave a little jump onto the rim and entered through the door at the top. It didn't seem to be so easy to get in. And I could see uh, the first one slowly fitting himself into place. The last one stood in the doorway with just the top half of him showing. Then he pulled out a sort of Mauser, pointed it at me, and did something behind it, as if he were cocking it. Then a small flame, like that from a well. Oh, don't mind book. me. This isn't a magical uh, space gun Mauser. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then a small flame, like that from a welding torch, came out of the barrel and floated towards me. Uh, it didn't come so fast. It just sort of floated and hit me in the thigh. Here and he points to his thigh. Uh, I couldn't move at it's all. Like killing someone in Berserk. It was yeah. like that slow moving little pellets coming at him, and he's not getting. He's like, "Whoa, that's this sick!" And actually, oh yes, it just hit me. Yep, just just hit you right in the thigh. Uh, I couldn't move at all, and I couldn't shout. Then the saucer took off almost horizontally and flew away. Then I fainted. My friends found me and carried me to Chico Hansen's house. There, Dona Maria dos Santos tore open my trouser leg and found a red swelling as thick as my finger. If you just read that one sentence, that would be the sexiest thing ever on the <laughs> yeah, show. Right, right. Dona Maria dos Santos tore open my trouser leg and found a red swelling as thick as my finger. Yeah. <laughs> which is a uh, golden look, hero. Which, oh, it gets even better. Which, lo- which looked like uh, the mark left by a whip. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and then the police came and took me to the hospital. There I had to wait, and when the doctor came, he didn't even look at me. He just said I was all right and sent me home. <laughs> He's fine. I've got a whip mark from Donna Maria Dos Santos too. We all get them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, you have to faint. Yeah, like maybe if it's your first time, I can understand. But you know, like, come on. Seven years after Tiago's encounter. A case involving aggressive little people in Pirasanunga would take uh, would come to SBEDV investigators through a witness uh, from a, a different case, this uh, Paulo Coutinho case, which is a case I'm going to be covering on the Patreon as a bonus episode. It's a very interesting case about a, a kid who was abducted on his way home from uh, taking night classes at college. Um, but uh, this particular incident took place on September 3rd, 1976, and the primary witness was a man named Senor Jao Romeo Klein, a 19-year-old farmhand. 
He was returning home from a friend's house at around 7 p.m. When he was uh, about 400 meters or 1,300 feet from his home or from his mother's home, a disc-shaped uh, craft appeared in the sky approaching from the south. According to Klein, it consisted of two parts, a lower part shaped like a deep bowl, which was rotating slowly in a counterclockwise motion, and an upper part, which appeared flattened and bore a red light in the center of it, cycling through orange and yellow until it was finally a pale green. The craft itself appeared to be gray in color and was roughly three meters or nearly 10 feet in diameter. As it hung five meters or 16 feet above the ground, a red light shot down from the bottom of the craft and three short beings descended in a slow fashion. They took up a position in front of Klein as if they were about to square off, essentially blocking off the road. Uh, and this is, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a picture of these beings too. Cause they're, um, they're rather, they're interesting. Um, uh, so that, that is little guys like doing that. They're, the little guys like to uh, stop people in traffic. They do uh, abduct them to maybe just they, no one really knows yet. They don't. Uh, they don't. I mean, I don't know. Do you call it aggressive? I guess you would call it aggressive. Just taking them like that constantly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if you could describe these beings for us, uh, the uh, images. Okay. The so uh, <laughs> great illustration. It it looks like okay. Their face looks like the moon. Yeah. If the moon had a face, so uh, almost it looks like a description. Yeah. The the like the if if you thought if you saw just the uh the profile of this thing, you would think it had a helmet on. It's got this perfectly rounded head, but the rest of his body looks like a like a wrestling action figure mm-hmm. or like a, like something that someone just because it's almost in a little action mode. He's got his arms out and he's very very buff, and uh yeah, total moon head. Like full moon head, like looks like Voyage to the Moon kind of movie head. Yeah. And the way that these beings are drawn, they almost look like bronze statues in a way. Um, they're kind of very featureless. Yeah, not look. a lot of features. Yeah. yeah, they're very featureless. But be, I mean, the, the, the best features are the, is just their physique. Like, yeah. they got, you know, their muscles and good. Yeah. Like, uh, just like they've got a, you know, pretty, they got a six pack basically, you know, and uh oddly but they've got like a physique. ken ken doll, doll kind of situation yep. and, and, and below the waist yeah uh maybe that's just the artist being decent like look i'm not drawing what you're just fully describing i will give you the bronze outline of it but yeah yeah um that that's completely accurate and you're gonna have to look at the images that that we uh are, are talking about here we'll put them on social media and like uh, you can check the uh, sources in the show notes but like uh just absolutely classic so uh these uh klein took up a position close to this grove of trees which was like about 26 feet away like they are literally kind of standing um in the road and as he's kind of making his advances forward they kind of lock arms together like literally just trying to cut them off from the road because there's really no other way to get around. And actually there is a picture of the guys kind of look like foosball guys already just with no clothes on. So I could see them all linking up doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So, um, that's terrifying. Uh, so like this, yeah, this particular image I'm sharing with you is kind of like how they were on the road. It's, um, they're just cutting the whole thing off. 
it's not really a lot of room to get by them. Um, okay, yeah, it's a very small road. I like how it, there, there's a picture of an actual road. Yes. That someone just kind of lazily sketched over. But yeah, yes. there's three guys. Yeah. Yep. It it makes you think, What you know, they're obviously protecting something you're doing, but your UFOs, do you have to be doing it on the actual road? It doesn't look like there's right. it's a very busy place. Uh, but maybe there's other business going on that uh, we're not quite, you know, that the, is way more important than this guy seeing them. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, seeing them you know lock their arms together like that klein takes out this large knife that he has that he uses to strip leaves from sugarcane and he in, instead of you know attacking the beings he just throws it at him you know just just throws it and uh the middle being took up a rod which it had at, at its side and then just pointed it at him in a bluish uh, almost white light comes forth, uh, striking Klein on his left thigh, and he loses consciousness like immediately. But he comes to a short while later, being lifted up by his neighbors who, you know, discovered him. And he was examined by doctors uh, where it was determined that the muscles of his left leg were impaired. And slowly over the next days, uh, next few days, uh, it would improve and he was able to resume normal function. But he was just he wasn't able to move them. Like at all after that. It does sound like the same weapon that keeps popping mm -hmm. up with these these big headed guys that either have some kind of rod or a magical wand that is shooting a very slow fireball that is, you know, humans can never avoid. Uh, I do like to, if you've got three aliens blocking the road, you have one knife, don't throw it. If no. throwing it is may, maybe you'll get one of them. But yeah. uh you're you're done after that, but you're gonna get shot anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 gonna happen. Just don't do it. Don't don't throw that knife. It's your it's your only form of protection, and you're just like you can block that rod. You can block that rod blast that's coming. Yeah. It's not coming very fast. You could just you know. Yeah. It it'll take it for you. Um. So as we as we continue on, we've, we've been trying to do this mostly chronologically, but Bob Pratt chronicled a lot of Brazilian cases over the years, and particularly ones involving hostile UFOs and humanoids. Uh, he collected them in a book called UFO Danger Zone. So, you know, cue that Kenny Loggins music. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, for instance, an article he co-wrote for the MUFON UFO Journal with Cynthia Newby, a loose entitled Brazil, still a UFO hotspot quote at 1 30 AM on March 9th, 1991, a two story tall UFO with a transparent dome on top suddenly appeared just above a Brazilian couple on their motorcycle and shined a bright light down on them. Two minutes later, it went away, then came back, then went away again and came back a third time on the third pass it quote bombed them dropping a ball of fire that exploded in their path um this is one of my favorite ones i want to say yeah. i love that i love that they find this couple and all of course i don't know why brazilian ufos are such exhibitionists you mm -hmm. gotta you they have to be a bubble or there's a clear dome like if you see a ufo no i, I actually saw the people inside too it was totally clear they see this couple on a motorcycle, like, I bet you can't get them to probably crash. Like, yeah, if you shine the brights at them, trust me, you shoot the shoot the little laser at them, they'll fall. I'm like, nope, didn't work. Yep. Go back again. Nope, didn't work. Third time, bombing with fire. I love it. <laughs> yep, just uh, dropping fire. Um, for 10 years, from 1975 to 1985, and even beyond that, UFOs did harmful things to UFO witnesses and 
in UFO literature, Brazil has the reputation as being a place where UFOs just harm people. Like, uh, you know, the, their sightings are a little more nuanced than that, but uh, it does have that reputation. Uh, and in April of 1991, two girls, eight and 12 years old, suffered burns, not unlike sunburns, after coming into contact with the UFO. In the late 1970s, uh, as we covered on uh, episodes 32 and 33, the residents of northern Brazil had gone through a flap uh, in and around Colares, in which UFOs were hitting witnesses with beams of light. Uh, and they had a nickname for them, the Chupa Chupas, because, uh, you know, Chupa-chupas, the what sucker they call suckers. Them. So, yeah. Yeah, the, I was going to say, I thought Chupa Chups was a, uh, an actual sucker that exists. Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the sucker suckers. That's a, that's a, uh, that's an interesting name to call these, uh, this, these UFOs and aliens in here. Yep. Uh, in 1980 and 1981, sightings were becoming so frequent in the Amazon that fishermen stopped fishing at night. And the stories that were told to Bob Pratt uh, on his many visits are just like absolutely terrifying. Uh, in January 1975, uh, 1979, Genusio, a 78-year-old rancher from the state of Rio Grande do Norte, was walking home. He had just lit a cigarette when a bright object appeared above him. A door opened in the bottom, and a hot light started to flood out and down at him. He could feel himself being dragged upward by some invisible force. Genusio grasped a small palm tree nearby, wrapping his arms and legs around it. He was pulled upward numerous times, but they failed to get him into the craft, assuming that that's what they were going for. After the third time, they dropped something that resembled hot oil onto his upper arms, burning him badly. The UFO promptly exited. Genusio was sick for two days after with headaches, and he was unable to eat. These are some of the like pettiest, smallest mm-hmm. actions I've seen UFOs do and aliens do in general. It does seem to focus around those uh, those roundheaded guys, those mm-hmm. those those dive suit looking guys. You know, you got to think maybe they were involved in that Tomato Man crash that would have been in the forties, and they learned a lesson and said, "All right, U.S. soil, they can quickly shoot us down. We like to go down and mess with people. Let's just go. Maybe if we go down a little a little further south." Down in Brazil, we can mess with people all we want. And we in the timeline, one of the first cases, they took tobacco. Mm-hmm. That was the first little plant they took. Maybe they got a, a little taste for it. And a lot of these seem to involve cigarettes. As soon as this guy's lighting mm-hmm. up a cigarette, he's getting messed with it. And then they're like, you know, taking his cigarettes and then dumping oil on him. Yeah. Um, what's interesting here is that it's not the only story like this. So another similar oh. story was told to Pratt by a man named Beato. Uh, like Genusio, he was walking home between 7 and 8 p.m. after visiting a friend. It was uh, months later, about August of 79, and he too lit a cigarette and a UFO appeared above him almost immediately. Quote, it was roundish, bluish, had two windows through which he could see two people inside, and it was shining an incredibly bright and hot light down at him. Again, these are like basically the same details. Uh, He too felt like he was being sucked up into the craft. He squatted down, grasping a a plant to keep himself from going anywhere. And then some hot oil was dropped onto him down onto his arms. Beato did not relent and the UFO ultimately lost patience and flew away. He refused to light a cigarette outside uh, for quite a while after that. 
It's almost like some medieval thing, isn't it? Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they would do pour hot oils over the side of the castle walls or something. What? what UFOs have lasers and all this other stuff. That just sounds like these these particular ones are just cruel. Yeah, it, it, like complete and total dick bags. Uh, you know, bringing their shit to this planet and uh, you know, leave it at home. I don't. Nobody needs this crap. Um, oh, his wife is probably so mad. He's smoking in the house constantly after that. She said, go outside. Do you want me to cover it in hot oil again? Yeah. No. I, so, I'm no. no, not happening. So like, it, it is interesting how many of these cases do truly revolve around tobacco. It is uh, something to it. There's just something to it. Uh, September 9th, 1976, uh, Ermelindo, who lived in the Valley of the Old Women, uh, it was around 2 a.m. and he was walking home, not far from a bar that he owned. A big light appeared above him. He immediately ran, attempting to take refuge inside his bar, but he couldn't get his keys to unlock the door. Like he was putting them in there, but he couldn't get the door to turn, which is interesting. Like you've got, uh, you know, a faulty door handle here, but he made a split second decision to run for his home instead, which was only like, like a uh, hundred and thirty feet away like 35 to 40 meters as he ran four cables with hooks on them dropped down from the ufo a small being in gray clothes came down with them and grabbed ermelindo his being was small and ermelindo was able to uh, like kind of get them in a bear hug uh though when he did he started to like this being started to vibrate so violently that it um it it like somehow had a calming effect on him And uh, at this point, the being was able to attach one of these cables to his left leg and it started to go up. So he's he's being drawn upward into a craft. And as he nears the opening, his right leg outside of the object kind of just like catches on the edge of it and he's jarred loose and he falls down into some yucca plants, uh, suffering cuts and scratches all over his body. And then the UFO. This is the most low rent. Mm-hmm. This is the most low rent abduction attempt I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess what the beam wasn't working that day, and they're like, "Well, we still got to abduct the guy, right? Like, yeah. we got those chains. They're not that clever. We we can get them, but no, they couldn't. Yeah, no, it did not happen. Uh, a similar incident occurred to a man uh, in Santo Antonio, in the state of Rio Grande do Norte, uh, not far from where Genusio was covered in his hot oil. Uh, This time, a man named Antonio was pulled upward by an invisible force to a UFO where a cable with four prongs came down, catching him on the back of his shirt. Through a window in the object, he could see two women and a man. And according to Antonio, he could hear one of the women say, here is a nice old man. We can take him with us to our Earth. Um, Yeah. It took this long when I get people probably get so excited. Like, oh, you're about Brazil and, you know, something sexy is going to happen. You know, Boaz had this great sexy adventure. No, none of that at all. It's like that happened at first. And this is the closest that that uh, it gets to anything like that. Yeah. The fact that a woman's like, oh, there's a nice old man we can take to our earth. What's our earth? Yeah. Um, it's... <sighs> Man, this is some, you know, kind of creepy ass stuff, but you know, 
Uh, to the bondage stuff, they're like, let's just get him in the chains before we even get him on the ship. Like, yeah. how sexy would that be? Oh, don't use the beam. Oh, like, pure power move. And then it fails. Like, all right, we'll use the beam next time, but we'll still get him with the ropes. Uh, there were a lot of kind of attep- attempted abductions in kind of this region. Um, there were some women who also claimed uh, to almost have been abducted by UFOs and stuff. Like, they're just really bad at it for some reason. They're kind of like, Uh, They get the Ed Walters ones all up in this business. But in 2004, Bob Pratt wrote kind of a follow up article about the UFOs uh, of the Valley of the Old Women. Kind of relayed some more terrifying stories. Um, Quote, most of the people we talked to were frightened during their encounters. In 1991, Celsa de Fatima Suarez, now 44, had one of the most terrifying incidents She's a cook at a Fazenda dos Poques and lives about 10 kilometers from the farm. It was around 11 or 1130 at night. And, uh, and as I was going home in a pickup truck with my eight year old son and my baby, Celessa said the baby was eight months old. She had to park the truck some distance from her house because the house is in the woods and there is no driveway. I was getting down from the truck, had a sack over my shoulder, held the boy with one hand and the baby in my other arm, she said. As we started uh, down the path toward the house, a light appeared in the sky ahead and lit up the ground all around us. I panicked and started running, pulling my boy with me and juggling my baby and the sack. I couldn't go very fast. We had to run through a lot of dense brushes, bushes, and then over a log bridge, over a stream. The light was going up and down, up and down, and it was right behind us. I thought it was chasing us. I really wanted to get away from it. I ran past a big tree and finally got to the veranda of my house and was screaming at my husband. I looked back, and the light was right above the big tree, only 15 meters away. It was red. Like, put that cigarette out and come help us. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? Uh, it, it was red like fire. It was 50 to 60 centimeters in diameter in the beginning, but was getting smaller, maybe 35 to 40 centimeters. By the time my husband came out, it had gone away. It just went uh, out and disappeared. Celeste said she is afraid to go out at night anymore. I always look to see if Vicente's there. Uh, a light around and I'm always ready to run. If I see one, my brother Wilson saw a light one night shortly after that. And he had to stay hidden in the bushes all night long because he couldn't get away from the light. In one account, a man allegedly died after coming into contact with one to our knowledge, a jaundiced like illness is not common after being exposed to a UFO, but during our week in Sao Vicente, we heard about two other such incidents. For Jose Edigo Verreta, then 70, a close encounter one night in July 1975 may have contributed to his death. He had worked that day delivering bread for a bakery in Sao Vicente, assisted by his nephew, Jose Antonio Verreta, who was 13 years old. Jose Antonio, now 41, said about 11 o'clock that night as they were taking their horses to pasture, a big light suddenly appeared in the sky. I asked Adigio what it was. He said, it must be a flying saucer. It scared us and we ran and hid in the bushes. 
It lit up the whole area. It looked like two plates, one upside down on the other. It kept going around and around in small circles just 12 to 15 meters above us. It made a whirring sound like a fan, and it was shining a greenish light down from the center. It stayed for half an hour or more, and then it went away. When he and Adigio thought it was safe, they went back home, arriving around 12.30 in the morning. The next day, Adigio woke up sick with symptoms of jaundice and shortly after went to the hospital. He died in the hospital 15 days later, Jose Antonio said. The diagnosis was hepatitis. Um, and jaundice is not often associated with hepatitis. So, yeah, they said hepatitis, but no, 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 Mm-mm. they know just, just, he saw this, this light. It, it don't even sound like the light hit him. I, I mean, a lot of these other, um, you know, experiencers in this, a lot of direct contact with these beams, you know, I would say anyone who died from any of those, those beam stories makes sense. This one, I don't know. He's mm. way older, uh, and they, and they said it was hep. Uh, you, know, you might have to take their word on it. But yeah, I guess signs of jaundice aren't uh, really associated with that. Yeah. So we haven't, I haven't heard of jaundice deaths um, associated much with UFOs. But yeah. No. They, nope. Maybe they're just figuring out different ways to mess with us and or kill us. Yeah. So after presenting all of these cases, how quick are you going to book a trip to Brazil now? Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'll, uh, I want to go get, as soon as I get there, I'm buying a carton of Kent's and I am, I'm going down as far south as I can get. And I want, I want to talk to the witnesses and yeah, I want to just drive down the smallest road I could find and just can't wait for the little guys to float me around. Yeah. Just make sure don't throw your knife. Uh, make sure you're holding on to it. Um, you don't want to, you don't want that out of sight, because that's when the wands come out and you know it's the only thing that can protect you from the wands. And um, yeah, that's, hey, bring a whip of your own. I would say, hold on, bring a whip of your own. Yeah. You have your knife, have your whip. It's very Indiana Jones. You're going on an adventure anyway. Uh, you're probably going to see a cream colored Indiana Jones adventure hat flying around. Yep. Uh, I, I, I love I love uh, Brazil stories. These are these are all been great. And yes, I would definitely love to go there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh Russ, thank you so much for joining me on this episode, man. This was a blast. Oh, man, thank you so much. I um, love doing these so much. Yeah. Uh, it's It's been so much fun. Uh, and I want to say, uh, yeah, you, like I said, if you can figure out who that guy was whose lungs were cleaned by aliens, I'm at Bizarro Russ on Twitter. Uh, but go check out uh, my shows on Believers Podcast and Zona Del Silencio, who is doing a uh, mass UFO sighting little series right now. So if you're hearing this, there's a mass UFO sighting episode and a uh, part two coming to that soon. Excellent. Yes. Uh, and uh, if y'all want to check out uh, any of our links, uh, any of that good stuff, check the show notes for the link tree and uh, all that fun stuff. There's some fun sources in there. You really dig into those sources because They've got the fun, cool sketches in there of like all of this stuff going on. Uh, but yeah, we'll, oh, we'll I love that you put the links yeah. in there because yeah. you can look at them while listening to this and, yeah. and play along with that. And go, hey, go get on Rob's Patreon, okay? I want to see him get that tattoo. So <laughs> get on that, please. Yeah the uh, the the offer still stands. If we can get to a hundred patrons by the end of the year, I will get the Pascagoula pinup girl tattoo. Oh it's gonna God. happen. So, and I will personally show that to uh, to uh, Calvin Parker myself. I'm hoping <laughs> to go see him in October. So that'd be great. We can get it done before that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
Thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO for the theme of this podcast. To Spencer Worth Davis for editing our podcast, uh, Megan Lagerberg for our logo, and the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on just some random dirt road in Brazil. In gray, we trust. Yeah.